Well, good morning, everyone. Um, morning to those who are here in person, to those who are watching online. It's great that you can be with us this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Cameron. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Canary Gardens. And uh, yeah, I have the privilege of being able to continue uh, our series in the book of Hebrews. So as we know, we've been tracking with this new series for the last couple of weeks, uh, going through the book of Hebrews. It's called Greater, although I must admit I'm getting confused between Better and Greater and all the other different types of Hebrews series. Just as a refresher to those who maybe haven't been tracking as closely, uh, we know that this particular letter was written by someone who was very steeped in Jewish background and understanding. It's the most complex letter in, in terms of language. It's the letter they never let us look at in Greek class at, at school because it was just too difficult. Uh, we know for that reason it was probably written to a Jewish audience, maybe some God-fearing Gentiles who had kind of joined into that community as well. But what we also know is this community was experiencing or beginning to experience some level of persecution or at least hearing as well about maybe more extreme versions of persecution happening around them. And there was this just general pressure from the Jewish community who didn't believe in Christ. Now, why is it important to know these things? Because it gives us the context around the passages that we're looking at. It helps us to realize that in this particular church, there was a temptation to turn back. There was a temptation to turn back to what was familiar to them, what was more comfortable for them, what the culture around them said was better than what they were looking at. To turn back to the old way, to cave into the pressure and trust in what was familiar rather than Christ to look to the law and the old covenant as the means for their salvation. So if you remember where we just finished in chapter 2, you'll know that the writer of Hebrews has been speaking about Jesus as the greater messenger, that he is much greater than the angels. And then at the end of chapter 2, he says this in verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So you see here that the writer is drawing this Jewish audience's attention to Abraham and how Christ helps the offspring of Abraham and not the angels. And so we shouldn't be surprised where the writer moves in our next chapter. If you're going to think the, the next person of significance to a Jewish audience, it's Moses. In fact, you couldn't get anyone more significant than Moses. And so in today's passage, really the temptation that we've, that, to turn back is going to come to the forefront. And we're going to see this writer warning these Christians not to turn back, not to give up, to keep looking to Christ and to know that giving up on him is giving up on true rest. And so why don't we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. I really encourage you to have God's Word with you, whether you're listening online or here this morning. Open God's Word. You need to have it before you as we look at it together and see what it has to say to us. Before we do that, why don't we pray? O oh Lord, gracious God, giver of rest to our souls, help us this day to once again rest in you. Lord, we pray that you'll expose our restlessness, the ways that we are running to things other than you, that you help us to see what those things are. Help us to examine ourselves, to know where we stand. 
And we pray, Lord, as we see in this passage, that your word will penetrate our hearts and will be alive and active in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure many of you, like me, have been enjoying watching the Olympics. Um, A little too much, maybe, I confess. Um, But I actually love the Olympics. And one of the things I love about the Olympics is just how much hard work they put into trying to achieve their goal. It's just amazing to think that the, the difference between first and last spot sometimes is like this much, and the only difference there is just that hard work that they've put in time and time and time and time again. And seeing them finally win that gold medal and just seeing them, they've done it. They've got to where they wanted to get to. They've done all that they can and they're able to rest in that. And, you know, I wonder, as I reflect upon the Olympics, whether we have a similar sort of attitude about our Christian lives. Whether we take our Christian lives as serious as Olympians take their pursuit of a gold medal. Whether we have that hard-working mentality, we read about it in the other, other parts of the Bible, We're compared to farmers and athletes, but do we have that same mentality to strive and to work towards our goal? Well, today's passage is going to highlight that. It's going to be calling these Hebrew Christians to not give up, to strive, to keep going, to not turn back. So why don't we read this chapter, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3, and see what it has to say for us. Hebrews 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in, the heavenly, in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence, and our boasting in our hope. So we see here at the very beginning of this chapter, the writer of this book is trying to get these Hebrews to focus on Christ, to get their eyes on Jesus. And he does this, as we said, through comparing Jesus to Moses, who, once again, was probably the most significant figure to these people. And so he compares And we see in this text that Jesus is greater than Moses in three ways. He's more faithful, he's worthy of more glory, and he has a greater position. Now, it's worth reflecting on this for a short time because it starts off in verse 2 with saying that Jesus was faithful to the God that appointed him just as Moses was also faithful in God's house. But later in this chapter, in verse 16, we're going to see that, that, that all those who were led by Moses, despite him being faithful... They didn't enter the promised land. None of them that he led entered the promised land. In fact, all those who came out of Egypt, they failed to be led by Moses into God's rest. 
But more than that, if you flick with me to Numbers 22, I think it's important that we, we see this because, again, the Hebrew writers, they would have had these context in their mind. Numbers 22 says this, And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take this staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. It's quite striking, right? Moses, as this faithful leader in this passage, is unfaithful. He disobeys God. He strikes the rock twice. And God says to him, as a result of that, you won't lead this people in. They won't go in because of your unfaithfulness. But it's even more significant than that. Just a few pages later in Numbers 27, in verse 12, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. (laughs) So we read here that not even Moses can go into the promised land. He gets to look at it from a distance, but he can't go in because of his unfaithfulness. And so Moses proclaims there at the end that that God would raise up a man who could lead them out, who could bring his people into the promised land. And yet, while this is pointing forward to Joshua, Moses is foreshadowing the need for a perfect and faithful leader who will bring the people in who will lead them out and bring them in and be a perfect shepherd. And so these passages, they would have been in the mind of these Hebrews, right? And and so this passage stresses, yes, Moses was faithful, but he didn't go into the land and neither did the people that he led. So, So Jesus is a much more faithful leader, a leader who has entered the promised land as our forerunner. As verse 1 states, he is our faithful apostle and high priest. Moses was faithful. But Jesus is much more faithful, perfectly faithful, and a shepherd who we know will not let his people down, who leads every single one of his people into the promised land, unlike Moses, who led none of the people into the promised land. But this passage continues to build, right? Look at verse 3. It states that Jesus is counted of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honour than the house itself. And I guess 
this illustration is pretty straightforward, right? It doesn't need much explanation. A builder of a house is worthy than more glory than the house itself. The house can't build itself. The house can't do anything without the builder of the house. Builder of the house. And in the same way, Moses, well, he was made by God. He was just made by God. God was the builder of Moses, and yet Jesus, Jesus was God himself. And we read about that in Colossians, right? All things were made through him and for him, including Moses. And so how much more glory and honour is, is Jesus worth as the builder of all things, the sustainer of all things? Much more. And so you can see here, he's trying to get their attention on Christ. Consider him. He's more faithful He's worthy of more glory and devotion and honour. Moses only foreshadowed Christ. Christ is the real thing. Christ is what we're waiting for. And finally, the writer shows that Jesus' position is much greater than Moses. Look at verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken about later, we mentioned that before, right? Moses was pointing forward to a better leader and a better shepherd. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So we see here that the position of Christ as God's son is far greater than Moses as simply God's servant. Now, now notice the language that's being used here, servant and son. Not only does this language show the, the differing positions, that, that Moses as a servant in the house of God had no rights over that house, but, but God as the son really is the heir of that house, the one who is over the people of God. But I think it also denotes the, the, the different covenants that they're bringing in. You see, it's through the new covenant that we too are ushered in to be sons of the living God, sons and daughters of the living God. Whereas the old covenant kept them at a distance to be servants. Jesus alludes to this in John 15, 15, where he states that he no longer calls them servants, but friends. Jesus, as the Son of God, has a greater position than Moses. But he also ushers in a covenant where we too will have a greater position. We will be called sons and daughters. So this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do. He wants these Hebrews to Christians to consider Christ to see that he is more faithful. He is worthy of more, more glory and devotion and honour. And he has a greater title. He's the son of God who's existed for all eternity. And so why would they turn back? Why would they turn back? And so you can see, this would have been a challenge to them. They, they, this community clearly would have been putting Moses on, on a pedestal, Right? There was no one greater than Moses. And they were considering turning back to him and the covenant that he brought in. But they need to keep looking to Christ. They must keep looking to Christ. And you see the urgency of this and the importance of this in the following verse, right? Look at verse 6. It brings out one of the big themes of the book of Hebrews as a whole. And we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now it's really important that we understand this if here, if we understand the book of Hebrews and really the wider Bible. You see there's a teaching here and it happens in verse 6 and verse 14 
that our faith needs to persevere, that a true faith perseveres. It's a teaching right throughout the Bible. You see it in the seeds illustration of Jesus that some seeds sprung up, but then it didn't develop. It produced thorns and thistles. But the true faith, it produced fruit and it lasted. This is the teaching of the Bible, that true faith perseveres. And we need to understand this. If we're going to understand the warnings all across the book of Hebrews, there is a need for these Christians to keep going, to not be slack, to know that they cannot turn back to the law and to Moses. They need to persist. And so I think the logical question to ask ourselves of that is who might we be looking to other than Christ? You know, for these people, Moses and the covenant that they were under, that was what was familiar to them. That was what was safe to them. That was what was even culturally acceptable to them. They weren't going to suffer persecution for that. But what is it for us? What's our culture calling us back to, to trust in, to depend upon more than Christ? Perhaps it's our culture's strong call to depend on ourselves. There is nothing more pervasive throughout culture than telling you, trust in yourself. Depend upon yourself. You can do it. You are good enough. You are worthy. And it seeps into our Christian churches. And before you know it, we're trusting in ourselves, not Christ. And so where is your faith? Is it in Christ? Do you see him as the one who is worthy of all your devotion, all the glory of your life? It's, it's to him. It's not to you. It's nothing that you can do. We must look to Christ and we must persevere in that looking to Christ. We're called to persevere, to stay focused on him. And so that's what really our first point is here, to consider Christ to consider who he is, to consider our devotion to him, our love for him, that we persevere in looking to him. But this passage continues to build from that point. And it continues to build on this theme of perseverance and not turning back. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I saw in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It's a striking passage, is it not? And so we see this all-important therefore at the beginning of verse 7. So because there is a need for us to persevere, that our faith needs to keep going, we need to be aware of our hearts. We need to be aware of our hearts. To not harden our hearts as in the rebellion. Again, notice how the writer here is getting their attention to stories they would be familiar with. They're looking back. He quotes from Psalm 95 here that refers back to a time when the people were rescued out of Egypt and yet they did not obey. And we saw that in our Exodus series, did we not? That they just constantly disobeyed God. They grumbled against him. They grumbled against one another. They made idols. They wished that they were back in Egypt and most of the time they lived like they were still in Egypt. That's what they did. And as a result of that, we read in verse 11 that God in his wrath did not allow them to enter the rest of the promised land. In verse 12, I think this is really a key section. We'll read it again. Verse 12 highlights, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You can see the writer's concern, right, in these words. That he wants them to look at their hearts, to assess whether they too may have the same kind of hardened and unbelieving heart that the Israelites in the wilderness did. You see, he's concerned that their desire to turn back to the old covenant is actually revealing that they have an unbelieving heart that is being hardened by sin that will lead them to fall away, to turn their backs on Christ. This is a serious text. And so we see in this text a call to self-examination. But it's worth noting a couple of things here. It's, it's worth noting that this text isn't saying that a Christian who is saved by God, given the Holy Spirit, that can fall away. But it's saying that someone who is in this community that he's writing to, who may be participating in the life of the church, hearing the things of God, that they may actually have the same kind of evil and unbelieving heart in them, leading them to walk away from Christ and prove that they never were really saved in the first place. And we'll see more proof of this later, that this is who it's addressed to. But, but the point is that these believers, all of them, need to be on guard. There is a need to perseverance. That they need to exhort one another that none of them may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because we need to persevere in our faith. That we will share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence. That means our original confidence in Christ not in Moses, not in the law, not in something else, to the end. The writer is stressing to them that their confidence must be in Christ, not something else. They cannot turn back lest they reveal that they have the same evil, unbelieving heart, which verse 19 makes clear that just as the Israelites didn't enter because of their unbelief into the promised land of God, so we too will not enter if we turn back, if we have unbelief. So what are we to take from this. Well, this passage is a clear warning to us to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
to examine our hearts, to see whether this same kind of unbelieving heart may be in us. Now, just just a note on this. This passage is clearly meant as a wake-up call to all of the Christians he's writing to, to cause them to go, hey, we need to stay focused on Christ. We need to to strive for him. We need to be aware of the sin in our lives, to, to, to put that to death, because it's dangerous and we need to persevere. But, however, it is specifically directed towards those who are walking in disobedience, who are following the same pattern of life and disobedience that the people in the wilderness were. That's the point, right? And what was that? Well, they were grumbling against God, they were grumbling against one another, they ran after idols, they, they lived like they were still in Egypt, even though God had brought them out. And so this is a wake-up call. Examine your life. Are you someone either listening online or in this room who is walking in disobedience to God, and and you know that you are? Are you living according to the world's ways? You may come to church and be around things of God, but you're walking in disobedience to Him. And this passage calls us to examine ourselves. It warns us to take our faith seriously because if we're walking in that way, it could reveal that we actually don't have a faith and it will lead us to fall away from God, that we're being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a clear warning, a clear clear call to examine ourselves, a clear call to, if we see that kind of disobedience in our lives, to repent, to turn away, to confess to one another to turn away from that sin. However, I would also say this, while this passage is a clear call to examination and examining yourself is a good practice, I know there are some of you in this room who do too much of that. You know, this passage is not designed to cause you to over-examine yourself. This passage is not calling someone who is participating in the Christian community, who is doing their best by God's Spirit to put to death in the sin in their life, seeking after God to cause them to doubt their salvation or to cause them to go internal and and, and examine themselves too much. That's not what the call is in this passage. The call is for those who are walking in a pattern of disobedience, who are living like the world, to stop, to examine yourself, to turn to Christ, to repent, But also note what the solution is. I think this is really worth emphasising. Of all the things the writer could say here, to stop the hardening of our hearts, to be aware of the deceitfulness of sin, what does he say? Verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. I love that. I love that that's the application here. Do you want to know the key thing in stopping sin hardening your hearts? Look around this room. It's exhorting one another. It's reminding one another of the truth. And in the context of this passage, it's reminding one another that true rest is found in Christ and not in anything else. To call actually one another's sin out at times, to to remind each other that that's not where rest is found. Rest is found in Christ. We must not have this opinion that any time we talk to one another about each other's sin, that it's judging one another. That's not true. We can call one another out in a godly way. We're called to do that. 
Of course, there's unwise and terrible ways to go about that. But we're called to exhort one another, to call one another out, and to encourage one another. Look to Christ. Keep going. That's the purpose of the church. And so you might think it's not a big deal if you're kind of half-heartedly involved in the church community. You kind of take church as a secondary option of the Christian life. But this passage says that if you're doing that, you're actually opening yourself up to be deceived by sin, to be hardened by sin. Because we need one another to exhort and to encourage, to stand firm. We are so terrible doing the Christian life as individuals. We just can't do it. It was never designed to be that way. It's always been about the people of God together, encouraging one another, helping one another, spurring one another on. How can we grow in that as a church community? How can we give people permission to speak into those areas of our lives without getting on the quick defence or justifying ourselves? I need to grow in this as a member of this church. And I hope you can see in your own lives ways you can grow in that too as you participate in the life of the church because this is one of the key ways that we will not fall into that pattern of sin being hardened by sin and being deceived by sin. So firstly, consider Christ. Secondly, do not be hardened by sin. Exhort one another, help one another. So let's move to our final point. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll have to pick up the pace a little bit. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So see here that the, the writer is re-emphasizing stuff we've already said, right? He once again commands them to fear uh, that any of them seem to have not entered that rest. But also notice his example here, because this is key to knowing who the intended audience is. Look at his example. He says in verse 2 that the good news came to the Israelites in the wilderness in the same way that it came to the Hebrews. So the good news in the Israelites that they would be delivered into the promised land, a place of rest, it came to them as it comes to us that God will deliver us. But it makes clear, and this is key, that it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So that makes it clear that the Israelites in the wilderness, they never believed in God's saving promise. And in the same way, they were never united by faith, right? And so this is the same thing that he's trying to be aware of, that there are people who could also not really believe, who are not united by faith, who have not listened to the good news and accepted the good news of Christ. It's not talking to Christians who have. But we should all be aware, lest that same heart be among us and displayed in our disobedience. So let's keep going. Second half of verse 3. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken somewhere, uh, so he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he has said, they shall not enter my rest. 
So now, it's easy to lose your way in this section because it gets a little bit confusing, but, but the writer is trying to show that even though God swore that the Israelites would not enter his rest, that there actually has been a rest that has existed before the promise to Israel, right? So way back, he quotes from Genesis. By the way, I find it odd that this guy is so steeped in understanding of Jewish um, writings that he just says somewhere it says this. I don't know why he doesn't say it in Genesis, but <laughs> confusing. Maybe he doesn't want to mention Moses because he wrote Genesis or something, but... But he goes back to Genesis and shows that on the seventh day, God rested from his works, displaying that the rest of God has existed from the very beginning. So the rest came before the promise to the Israelites, and and they failed to enter that rest. Look at verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today if you harden today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts for if Joshua had given them rest God would not have spoken of another day later on so you see the the argument building here God's rest has existed since the foundation of the world when he rested on the seventh day the people of Israel they did not enter that rest and so God appoints another day speaking about when Christ would come. Another day for the people of God to enter his rest. And again, he knows what his audience would be thinking. They would be thinking, well, what about Joshua? Didn't Joshua take the people into the promised land and and they experienced the rest of God? Well, no, he says in verse 8, he makes it clear they didn't. They didn't receive that rest. Because God was pointing forward to a day when we needed more than just physical rest from physical enemies, but we needed true rest, rest from our works, a rest that is rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so that's kind of the way he's, he's going through it. And he brings it all together in verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So you can see here that he's going to some lengths to show that there remains a rest for the people of God that has not been entered into. And what does that rest mean? Well, it means those who have rested from their works like God rested from his on the seventh day. So you see here, he wants the Hebrews to know that to enter God's rest, you need to, enter, to rest from your works. And so we see here that the rest being spoken about predominantly in this section is not talking about a future rest, although that's there as well, because we know that we will have a perfect future rest when we go to be with Christ. But it's talking about the rest that is available to the writers now through resting from their works and trusting in Christ. That's what they need to do. Rest from their works and trust in Christ. Look at verse 11. We'll finish off this section. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I actually love the way that this section finishes off. 
Because he says something that I think you wouldn't expect to go together. It's almost like these two words shouldn't go together. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. Strive and rest. Your translation might say, do all that you can or do your very best. But the point is clear that we need to do everything possible to enter that rest. Or in other words, work hard to rest. And he finishes off by these famous verses, right? And, and I guess it gives a little bit of a different tone to these verses about God's word than we probably usually use it, right? He's reminding the people that he's writing to that God's word is true and it will pierce their hearts and expose who they really are. That they're all exposed before God. They're all naked before God to whom they must give account. Or in other words, you can't hide from God. God knows what's happening in your hearts. His word will expose the very depths of your hearts. And so beware of that. And so that really brings us to our final point. First was to consider Christ. Second, we looked at the negative command to to not be hardened by sin. And now we get the positive command to strive to enter God's rest. And I guess the first question to ask here is to ask, have you rested from your works and trusted in Christ? That's what this passage is about. Have you rested in Christ, rested from your works and trusted in Christ? Or have you not? You know, Augustine said that our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee, in Christ. There is no other place for rest than Christ. And just know for certain, if you're considering turning back or turning away, know that you're not turning to a place of freedom, you're turning to a place of restlessness. Only Christ can give us true rest to our hearts because he cried out on the cross that it is finished. The work is done. We can rest. Have you trusted in that? Have you turned to that? And for those of us who would confidently say, well, yes, I have, well, let us heed the warnings of this passage and keep going. Let us keep trusting in Christ. Let us every day keep putting our faith in him. Because, you know, even as Christians, even after we've trusted in Christ, our hearts still drift towards unrest, do they not? I see it happening in my own heart. Did you know that all of your sin as a Christian comes from an inability to truly rest in Christ. Why do, we, why do we lie to other people? Because we want their approval and we can't rest in the approval that we have in Christ. Why do we covet and, and desire what others have? Because we can't rest in what Christ has supplied to us in the riches of the gospel. All of our sin comes from inadequate resting in the promises of God. And so we need to rest each day to look to Christ, to help one another, to look to Christ, to rest in him, to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, to run to other things rather than Christ himself. And so let us strive to enter 
that rest. And I hope we actually can have a similar attitude to those Olympians as Christians. That is that serious. We've got a much better goal that we're trying to reach than a gold medal. We have a much serious calling than, than them. And yet, do we strive for that? Do we, do we notice the restlessness of our hearts each day and know the importance of coming to Christ and resting in Him and, and, and coming around one another to, to help us focus on Him? There is a call for us to persevere, to keep going. That's what this passage is all about. So we need to look to Christ, to remind ourselves of his work, of what he has done for us, to be aware of our tendency to sin, to deceive ourselves, and to courage and exhort one another, to stay focused on Christ until one day we enter the fulfillment of that rest when Christ comes. Why don't we pray? Father, I think reading these passages are good for us because they remind us that we need to stay focused on you. They remind us that our hearts are fickle still, even as believers, that we, that we have a temptation to turn back. Lord, help us to rest in you. Lord, I pray that you help us as a church. We know that this letter was written to a, a group of people and I pray that you help us as Christians in this church to do a better job at exhorting one another and encouraging one another and helping one another and at times rebuking one another, but Lord, all for the purpose of helping one another rest in you. So give us wisdom in what that looks like, Lord. Help us to do that in love. I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to expose our hearts through your word where we're actually not resting in you. We all have areas of our life where we struggle to rest. Expose that and help us to once again rest in you. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have granted a true rest for your people. We thank you that you are a better leader than Moses, more faithful, that you have already entered the promise of rest through your resurrection and you promise that all of your people, that you have secured that place for them. So help us to have full confidence in who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.